During this holiday season, we're using our favorite Christmas hymns as a springboard into some important themes of Advent and going straight to the Bible to rejoice in the reality that Jesus has come and He is coming again. Let heaven and nature sing. These are the songs of Advent, and we are Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. You can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Today, our hymn, like Josh told us, that we're going to take our themes from is that hymn, What Child Is This? Uh, The direction, or towards the answer of that question, is actually summed up in one of the verses that doesn't normally get sung. It's from the original writing of the the hymn by W. Chatterton Dix. Unfortunate name, but we won't go any further than that. But he... Uh, wrote three original verses. The second verse that he wrote includes this line, Good Christian, fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. If you iron out the poetry, it would say more like this, Good Christian, worship God in deep reverence. Fear Him. Why? Because that silent little baby boy In that manger, that silent boy that's yet to speak a word is the Word made flesh. And he's here on behalf of sinners like me and sinners like you for our redemption. That's a reason to worship. That's a reason to have deep reverence as a response of our hearts. The writer of the hymn, the author of the hymn, calls him the Word. He does that because the Bible does that. John, one of Jesus' disciples, in John chapter 1, verse 14, refers to him as the Word. When he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is describing the incarnation. That's a word that has its etymology or its language history in the Latin language, dating all the way back to the 1300s. Two Latin words kind of crammed together, one for the word into and one for the word flesh. Into flesh. The word has to do with the reality of of what Jesus did. In fact, the primary usage of the word in all of its forms throughout history has always primarily been to answer the question, what child is this? He's God incarnate. He's all the cosmic powers of God squeezed into the flesh of a tiny little baby. And so today, as we answer that question, what child is this? It is my prayer that that we'll see afresh today that the incarnation of Jesus is more wonderful than we can imagine and far more comforting than we tend to believe. It's more wonderful than we can imagine and it's far more comforting than we tend to believe. Father, today what we know not, please teach us 
what we are not, please make us, and what we have not, please give us. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to John's Gospel, as the astute listener has already guessed by now. Verses 1 through 14. John was the disciple of Jesus, known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote that about himself, though, so we don't really know. I'm joking. We know that it's true. Jesus loved all of his disciples. John just had the confidence in his relationship with Jesus to actually write about it in his gospel. He was the one whom Jesus loved. Brother of James. They had a father named Zebedee. They are the sons of Zebedee. Jesus gives them a nickname the sons of thunder. That's who this man is. John is one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus when that happens. He's, he's one of the ones brought to pray with Jesus in the garden, although they do all fall asleep. But he is one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, obviously. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those letters that you find as you're getting closer to Revelation, which he also wrote, the book, of, the book of Revelation. He survived being boiled in oil for the name of Jesus Christ. They thought that would kill him. God saved him. I don't know, right? Because like, if you think back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, they're cast into the fire, and then the Son of God appears with them in the fire, and they walk out, and they're not singed at all. I don't know if that was John's experience, like nothing at all, or if, does he walk around with scars on him? For the rest of his life, those burns that he received for the name of Jesus, we don't know. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. That's where he writes the, the gospel uh, or the book of Revelation. But it's the end of his life that I find very interesting. Church fathers, uh, Polycrates, he was the bishop of Ephesus. And uh, Irenaeus, they both put him, and we talked about this when we went through the book of Ephesians, they put him in Ephesus, there at that church, towards the end of his life. So he lives until probably about 100 A.D., early 100s A.D., and he's there in Ephesus, that church that Paul saw planted. Mary Magdalene, perhaps, is there as well. Mary, the mother of Jesus, perhaps, there. you got to talk about a core team. So they, they had a church there, and, and it is, it's said in church history that that's where he lived out into old age. He writes this anywhere from 40 to 70 years after Jesus is, has died, been buried, and ascended into heaven. Anywhere from 40 to 70 years, which means he could have wrote it anywhere. But it's possible if it's more in the 70 years after Jesus reigns that he writes it there in Ephesus towards the end of his life. We don't know, but I imagine he writes it. I don't imagine. I know he writes it from a place of of deep understanding that he's gaining of who Jesus is with each passing day of his life. He is becoming more and more aware of the realities of Jesus. And the number one thing that he wants us to see as he starts his gospel is that Jesus is God. What's the most important thing that that people can comprehend about the incarnation of Jesus? What makes it more wonderful than we can imagine is that this child is God. That's where he begins. He says, in the beginning was the word. Sound familiar? If you go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the beginning, God. That's not an accident. John wasn't 
plagiarizing either. He was just writing what was the most important reality. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's eternal. Not only that, but He's the Creator and Sustainer of all things. Verse 3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the Creator, Sustainer of all things. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the source of life. He is the source of light. This is the child. What child is this? He's God. He's eternal. When time began, in the beginning, John says, in the very beginning, and then he uses this tiny little Greek word, sounds kind of like ain. And when people use that word, it can mean a whole host of kind of connections, like a connecting word. But when John uses it in his gospel, it always means not just in the beginning, but predating the beginning. Prior to this thing, when the world was spoken into existence, Jesus already existed. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word. He's the Creator. The next time you read the creation narrative, don't read Jesus out of it. Hear His voice there in the beginning Know His presence there in the beginning because John says not a single bit of that happens apart from Jesus. He's the Creator of all things. He's the Sustainer. In Him is life. Life spills out of Jesus. Life flows out of Jesus and He sustains life. He's the light. And that light, John tells us, was invincible. There was no amount of darkness that could withstand it. This is who was in that manger. All the cosmic power of the universe in this child. What child is this? (laughs) This child is eternally God. What child is this? This child speaks worlds into existence. What child is this? This child sustains all life. What child is this? This child is the invincible and illuminating light in a dark world. All of that and more squeezed in to the flesh of that tiny baby boy. The Word came flesh and dwelt among us. St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it, and you're free to say it either way, it's fine, says it this way, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light Sleep, the way be tired on its journey, 
that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, the strength, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. It is so easy in this season because of familiarity, and and some people say familiarity breeds contempt. I think more often familiarity breeds apathy. It's super easy for us to miss the outrageous, unfathomable wonder of this season. You ever held a baby before? How helpless. I'm, gonna, I'm about to say the word worthless, but I have to. I ha, but like economically, they are. Societally, right? Like, like they contribute nothing. Jesus is laying there, cooing. Just now, like, like in real time, his hands are learning how to move. His his feet are. You, God. It's far more wonderful than we can imagine, and may that not put us in a place where we stop trying to imagine it. Will you ever wrap your brain around the incarnation? No. Should you ever stop trying to wrap your brain around the incarnation? No. Absolutely not. Keep trying. And in this season in particular, as it surrounds us everywhere, might we intentionally Push in to contemplation, to ponder these things in this season. That's the first thing John wants us to see. What child is this? This child is God. The second thing he's going to show us, what child is this, right? Not only is he infinite, but he's also intimate. What child is this? This child is God with us. But before he gets there, he has a little interlude, and I I find it very helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. He wants us to see that none of us are the Word made flesh. That's an important thing to recognize in this world, that none of us are the Word made flesh so we can rest easy. And he does that by talking about the other John that sometimes maybe people confuse him with. He says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is verse 6. He's talking about John the Baptist, a man who ate locusts and had long hair and lived in the desert, wild man, but also the cousin of Jesus. I don't know if you remember the story, but Mary goes to see Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And as she approaches Elizabeth, John the Baptist kind of, yeah, yeah, like inside of her, right? She feels it. He's jacked, man, about Jesus. And he never stops being excited about Jesus. That becomes the single solitary focus of John the Baptist's life. He does every single thing that he does to make the way straight for Jesus. In fact, that's what, he, what John, the apostle, goes on to say. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now hear me, John the Baptist is a very important part of the kingdom of God. Very important part of the kingdom of God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, we hear Jesus' own words. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we don't have time to exegete that entire verse. We're not going to, but I'll give you two sentences to kind of sum up what that verse is saying. One, John the Baptist was a big deal. He played a major role in the kingdom of God. Sentence number two, the kingdom of God is upside down because the least are always the greatest. So two lessons that you can quickly take away from that verse. There's a way more underneath it. You take that with you because the main point is what I am seeing in verse 8. We'll read it again. He was not the light. Important in the kingdom? Yeah. Deeply influential? Yeah. A pretty big deal? Yeah. Not the light. He was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist, this is what I want you to hear today. John the Baptist was not tasked with being invincible light. We're not either. It's not our job. John the Baptist was not tasked with being the eternal creator and sustainer of all things. We're not either. John the Baptist was not tasked with saving the world from their sins and darkness. He wasn't even tasked with saving himself. We're not either. John the Baptist wasn't tasked with being God with skin on. We're not either. Now, duh. But really? Like, maybe this Christmas season, you don't need to make everything perfect for your family. Maybe this Christmas season, you don't need to make everything perfect for yourself. Maybe you don't need to make it Instagram worthy. Maybe Jesus is worthy. Maybe this Christmas, you don't need to be the light in other people's ignorance, so you have to fight with people on Facebook or at the dinner table, right? Maybe Jesus can be the light that shines into the darkness. Maybe this year you don't need to do so much. Be so much. Spend so much. Maybe this Christmas can be the one where you begin to rest in the reality that this child that is being held on Mary's lap has infinitely more power in a single moment and this tiny little toe on his foot than all of us collectively in all of our moments collectively could ever generate in our entire lives. More power to transform, more power to heal, more power to fix, more power to infuse joy and wonder into this season than any of us ever could. Rest easy. For some of you, your expectations are killing you of who you think you need to be as a mother, as a father, as a son, as a daughter. The weight is unbearable for some of you. Let Jesus be the Savior. Let Jesus be the King. Let Jesus be the light. Rest easy. That's not an excuse to not work. To not apply yourself to things. But it means you can lay your head down on your pillow at night and go to sleep. It means you can take a nap every now and then. You don't got to pull it off. Jesus. That little baby in the manger 
get it done. He's the only one who can transform any of us. So rest easy. That's the interlude, but I love it because it makes my heart rest easy. I don't have to be the Savior this Christmas. Jesus is. But he goes back now to his second point. The Word was made flesh, not just to be as an infinite God, but as an intimate God, God with us. Verses 9-11. through 11. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. You've you got to follow this. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. John's reestablishing that reality. This is the most massive thing to ever be squeezed into a baby and that ever will be squeezed into a baby. It's just, it's unthinkable, right? He's coming into the world that he made. Pilate, who will sentence him to death, was created by Jesus. Caesar Augustus, right, who will uh, send everyone to be taxed, including to Bethlehem for Mary and Joseph, was made by Jesus. The whole world was made by Him. That star that will shine brightly for the wise men to see was made by Jesus. The wise men themselves made by Jesus. They're going to give Him gold, frankincense, and myrrh spoken into existence by Jesus. They're going to give Him His stuff back. (laughs) Here's your gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's who He is. But look at His reception. The world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What I want you to hear in that, there's a lot of things you can hear there that are truly biblical things. This is one of them. Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. Jesus knows what it is to be overlooked. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Jesus knows what it is to be forgotten. Jesus knows your pain. He is God with us. There's this uh, band, or they used to exist, called Folk Angel. I'm probably the only person on the planet that would listen to their music, but they do it like Christmas albums. And on one of them, they had this like spoken word poem thing, and I, everybody in my family hates it, but I love it. And you, so you're, I'm going to read some of the words to you of it, because this, I think the reason I love it is because I love Jesus, really. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> I do love Jesus, but I made it sound like my family doesn't. That was the joke part. (laughs) The poet is writing about the reality of Jesus' lowly birth. What do we receive from that? What do we take with that in the sense of understanding God with us? He first points us to Joseph. He says he made his way down to a stable, and as he does, this is what he's thinking. Would this be the place of his son's delivery? But this place was not a place fit for a king. And if Gabriel was right in saying this would be the Savior coming to earth, then surely God would have provided a better suited place for his birth. Here they were amongst the hay and dirt, trusting in the Lord's faithfulness, leaning on his word. And I can imagine the echoes, the echoing screams from Mary filling the night sky as she labored through the pain of childbirth with her husband by her side. And the joy they must have felt as their son finally arrived and they wrapped him in swaddling clothes and held their little child, overwhelming joy, colliding with indescribable peace, the Son of God, 
Son of Man, the King of Kings. And this lowly birth would mark His ministry. The Savior of the world born amongst the sheep. You see, a good shepherd knows his sheep. He walks with them every step. He knows their every need. And this birth would be the proof of the kind of shepherd Jesus would be. A conquering Savior as well as a sympathetic high priest. You see, he's walked in our footsteps. He has seen all that we see. He's been tempted, tried, and persecuted. He knows pain and suffering. He's been beaten, spit upon, and cursed, betrayed for little cost, accused, though innocent, and murdered upon a cross. And because of these things, he is able to say the two words that every sheep longs to hear. Two words that sound so beautiful in our ears. Two words that instill trust and illuminate fear. Two words, I know. He knows. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows your name. He knows. And as he rose from the grave, victorious forevermore, he knows. He knows your battle. He knows your every need. A good shepherd knows his sheep. You are known by Jesus more than your brain can even begin to comprehend. And there should be more comfort in that than we even begin or tend to believe. He knows you. Everything about you, everything you're experiencing, there's so much comfort in the manger. And the Word made flesh. But not just in the manger, but all the more in the life of and death of Jesus. He knows your pain. And those who receive Him because of His finished work on the cross, here's what verse 12 says, but to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become close to God. To become children of God who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's saying it's a spiritual birth, not a physical birth, but you're born into the family of God by believing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You want to make this a great Christmas? If you're not a Christian, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That little baby born in that manger is going to grow up and live his entire life in absolute perfection, not a bit of sin in him. But yet he will be accused falsely and he will go to the cross. But this doesn't surprise God the Father because the plan has always been that there on the cross through the shedding of Jesus' blood, redemption could be purchased for sinners like me and sinners like you. Jesus doesn't stay dead, but is raised again victorious from the grave. And the extension that John says, the gift extended to you is as many as receive him, he gives the right To become children of God. Notice the promise is to be close to God. God with us. Now if you've had an absent father or a a difficult father, that picture might be difficult. But it's intended to be a posture of a picture of nearness and intimacy. God says, I'll be near to you because Jesus drew near To you, the gospel story is a story of God with us. 
Which brings us full circle back to where we started. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word didn't become a religious system. The Word didn't become a theological checklist. The Word didn't become a political movement. The Word became an embodied presence with us. God with us. He comes with the fullness of God, the fullness of all God's glory, verses 1 through 5, but but also look at His posture. At the very end of the verse, He comes with grace and truth. Grace. Kindness, favor, goodwill. Child of God, do you believe today, those of you who are truly in Christ, that you are highly favored by God? That He drew near to you and He loves you and you are precious to Him. That's the story of God in the manger. He is both infinite and intimate. This is far more comforting than we tend to believe. The incarnation of Jesus is more wonderful than we can imagine. Far more comforting than we tend to believe. So how do we respond? How do we respond to these two realities? The wonder, incomprehensible nature of the incarnation and the intimate nature of the incarnation. How do we hold both of those things in our hands simultaneously and respond? Well, I'm going to take our application from verse 3 of our hymn. It says, So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings, salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. So, Three things from that course that apply to how we should respond to this reality. One, out of the wonder and comfort of the incarnation, bring Him your worship. Bring Him your worship. Incense, gold, myrrh. I am thinking in particular, very specifically, what day or time of day this week are you going to set aside, even if it's only ten minutes or Five minutes to actually worship God in private. For some of you, you already have those rhythms. You know when it's going to be. For some of you, it's been a minute, and that's fine. This isn't condemnation. It's beckoning you into this beautiful opportunity that is yours as a child of God. Pick a time, even if it's only once this week. Start small, right? Keep going in this habit, though. What time of day, what day will you set aside 5, 10, 15 minutes to maybe read a hymn, maybe read this passage from John chapter 1 and worship God, even if you don't feel like it? Number two, out of the wonder and comfort of the incarnation, lay hold of His presence regardless. That second verse says, come peasant, comma, king, to own Him. The reality is, peasants and kings broken and put together, weak and strong, elite and marginalized, they're all welcome at the manger. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that reality about yourself? Do you believe it about other people, right? It should both make you feel welcome in the presence of God 
And it should also make you humble towards others, also being welcomed in the presence of God, regardless of status or resume. Number three, last one. Out of the wonder and comfort of the incarnation, give Jesus the throne of your heart. It's one thing to put little baby Jesus in the manger. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. We learn so much from it. But that's not his final destination. Okay? What's that movie, Talladega Nights? They prayed a six foot or six inch baby Jesus, whatever. Like, like you, he doesn't stay there. He doesn't. It's, an, it's another thing entirely to give Jesus the throne of your heart. To say, every decision I make for my family, every decision I make with my bank account, every decision I make towards my neighbor, every decision I make in my career, every decision I make with my friends is going to submit itself to the kingship of Jesus. That's... That's a whole other thing. It's a big deal. It's not easy. What evidence is there in your life that you truly believe Jesus is a good king? Right? That if you give him the throne of your life, that's actually a no brainer. Like, what evidence is there in your life that you believe that it's a no brainer for Jesus to be the king? Because that's the best possible thing that can happen. Not only that, is he a good king? but that He's worthy of the throne of your heart. What evidence is there in your life of that? One evidence of, of Jesus being on the thrones of our hearts will be that we, we love each other. I started with John, the disciple. There's another church father, Jerome, who writes about John, the apostle who wrote these words to us today, being in Ephesus. He becomes so old and decrepit I say that lovingly. But he wants to be with the gathered saints so badly that they pick him up and they carry him to the gatherings every time they take place. That's what Jerome tells us happened. One thing I already think is how beautiful would it be if, if in the future that's true of us? Maybe it'll be here at Mercy Village Church. Maybe it'll be somewhere else. But that we have become so infatuated with the reality of Jesus that even in our old age, we're calling up our kids and grandkids to come drag us to church. You're going to have to help me. We won't hopefully be, have those stairs anymore. Praise God. So I'll pray for that. But if so, that we'll have kids that will carry us up and worship Jesus together. But what's even sweeter about the story is that as he would sit there and the saints would walk by. Jerome tells us that the thing he would say over and over and over again is, dear children, love each other. Dear children, love one another. Maybe with scars on his arms from being burned in oil. (sighs) Remembering standing at the feet of his Savior as he was crucified on that cross having seen the church at Ephesus grown and flourish, having written multiple deeply theological addresses to the church that we still have in our Bibles, he says, if I'm going to boil it down into one thing, it's going to be this. Love one another. 
What child is this? He's God. Not just infinite. Infinite. Intimate. That was was like the crescendo of the sermon, too, and I blew it. All led up to that. Can we start over? I'm joking. (laughs) Infinite and intimate. God with us and God with us. The reality that should then spill out of us is that we love each other. Might that be true of us? Father, thank you so much that you're gracious. Your word is powerful. The realities of Jesus are powerful. Bring them home into our hearts right now by your good grace. As we take just 120 seconds to kind of sit in whatever you've done in our hearts, will you please move in your people? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.